Well, parents, as we announced last week, and well, and this week, uh, there's the Disciple Me class for the older kids is in the back, and the nursery is behind me. So um, we're doing that today because of the subject matter before us, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, um, as um, Mr. Terry so boldly read for us earlier. I want to begin with uh, just a question. Uh, Why do you value marriage? Why do you value marriage? Why did you get married? All to my couples here today. Or why are you seeking marriage to my young people here today? What's the reason behind getting married? Uh, I'll be honest with you. For me, this is not news to my wife. Uh, For me, marriage was a desire that I had that I can remember as early as 10 to 12 years old. I told our community group this on Wednesday night. The reason why I wanted to be married because it was a therapy for me. As a son of a divorced family whose mother left when I was eight months old, um, divorce, divorce riddled my emotional state and stability as a young man growing up. It was difficult to process and understand, and therefore, I struggled to, um, I, I struggled to uh, be a, a child of divorce, and therefore, my solution to that was, I'm just going to get married, and I'm going to correct all these wrongs. And so, Marriage, to me, was a goal of mine early on, and let's be honest, that's an improper reason to get married. Marriage can't be our therapy for the hurts of our past. Other people want to get married because they're pressured into it, right? The old family pat on the back, son, when are you going to you know, drop the question kind of thing. Um, social pressure in a culture that... Uh, certain cultures that promote marriage, um, sexual longing, um, I'm, I'm burning and with lust, and so therefore I just need to get married uh, to avoid temptation. Um, maybe you want to be married or you, you were married just because you wanted to have kids, and you were not really interested in marriage and sharing life with a person, but you just wanted to have children. You wanted to be a father, or you wanted to be a mother. Or it's because you fell in love or because you wanted a tax break. Whatever your reason might be, we all have these different reasons for valuing marriage and pursuing marriage. But the truth of the matter is, is as as people of God, as the church, marriage should be our utmost desire because it's God's good design. It's what He wants for us as God's people. It's a way to honor the very thing which He created at the very beginning. And so marriage is something that we should seek to honor and glorify God in with our own lives as we seek to pursue a marriage that honors the Lord. Now young people in our, in our congregation today, seeking a marriage that honors the Lord is countercultural today. So you will face scrutiny And you will face ridicule and you will face all kinds of skepticism and backlash by wanting to choose a monogamous relationship, a a relationship that has sanctity and purity that honors the Lord. Because in our culture today, 
the foundation of a Christian marriage or marriage as a nation built upon Christian principles is crumbled. It has crumbled completely and totally into an array and aberrations of sinfulness and confusion. Well, it was no different for the Apostle Paul in the Corinthian culture. Paul will uh, once again moves through these chapters addressing different issues as a good leader in the church. And this chapter is an extremely applicable chapter for all of us here today as we look at the marriage relationship and most important, what I call God's gift in marriage. Paul has addressed these issues throughout these, uh, this letter. And he's literally like, uh, like a, a mail-in response. He's responding to these issues that have been brought to his attention. One in particular we looked at was the bad theology regarding man's wisdom. The next one was divisions in the church. The next one was sexual immorality and the failure of the church to deal with sin in its mists. Then it was the uh, believers suing other believers and not allowing things to be settled in the scope of church leadership. And now in chapter 7, he deals with another issue that is in response to correspondence for the Apostle Paul as a spiritual guide for the Corinthians. You'll notice in verse 1, he writes, Now concerning the things about which you wrote. It's very clear that Paul is responding to the very issue of marriage and in particular, what should we be doing in our marriages? Now Paul is dealing with this because in the Corinthian culture, marriage under Roman rule and law was a very strange topic. History shows us that there was at least four different types of marriages in the Roman culture. There was slave marriage. Slaves were allowed by their masters to engage in marriage relationships. But at any point and at any time, your master could ship your wife off or ship your husband off and you had no say-so about it. And even at that point, bring another spouse to you for the sake of certain things like, for example, I need more slaves. So why don't you procreate with someone else so that I can have more slave children to work whatever needs to be worked and take care of what needs to be taken care of. There was also arranged marriages. Fathers would arrange and, and, and settle with financial gifts and things so that their daughters were uh, uh, sent to a family, sent to a, a, a man to marry for the sake of political or financial gain and stability. There was common law marriage where a man and a woman would live together for a year and therefore by the state be acknowledged as husband and wife. And then finally, the most famous, the most well-known in the Roman system is called the conferatio marriage, which is the very form and model of the marriages that we experience today in our culture. 
That marriage system was of a, a, a marriage uh, celebration of nobility, of the higher ranks of society, and ultimately was adopted by the Catholic Church and became the form and model for Christian weddings and marriages today. There was a one-day ceremony, there was food, there was a matron of honor, there were flowers, there were rings. You know why that you wear your wedding ring on your left Ring finger, church? Well, because the Romans did it. The Romans actually believed and even, uh, in, in, in a sense, discovered that a vein in your left ring finger runs all the way through your body to your heart. And therefore, acknowledge that the ring being the affection, uh, the source of affection directly to your heart, signifying the bond of marriage. It's the very form and formula that we use today. And so you can imagine with the Corinthians, now believers in the church, some slaves, some in arranged marriages, all these different scenarios, the idea is how do we minister the truth of God's Word to these different situations so that God is honored in the way in which He truly created the marriage relationship. One particular way that the Corinthians wanted to deal with it was celibacy and abstinence. That's the issue here in our chapter. Celibacy and abstinence. Abstinence being the withdrawing from and the non-participation in sexual activity in a relationship with your husband or wife. Celibacy actually choosing singleness and abstinence as a way of life. And so as we begin to look at these verses, it's very important that we understand verse 1 so that we can see the foundation of Paul's argument. He writes, without punctuation, without commas, without any type of direction, he writes verse 1, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, your translations put a comma there because of the different interpretations of this one verse. Some believe that Paul is stating with his own opinion and his own direction, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And you will read commentaries and you will read directions in which one view is taken that this is Paul's opinion. And in a sense, we could say it is his opinion because he will tell us at the end of these verses that this is the way in which he practices his lifestyle. But I want you to consider the second view. The second view is that Paul is saying, now concerning the things in which you wrote, semicolon, it is not good for a man to touch a woman. As if this is the issue in which Paul is bringing forth because he has letters written to him saying, hey, as the Corinthians, we think it's best and we are teaching our people to be abstinent because of the ways in which we have to engage in our culture. We're choosing abstinence in the, in the realm of marriage. Whatever view you take, you're basically ending into the same point that Paul wants to communicate that marriage of the, has the, of the utmost importance in the mind and the design of God and therefore abstaining from sexual intimacy in marriage is wrong 
and goes against the design that God has created it to be. Now the second view, I think, is worthy of our consideration because we see in a chapter before, in verses, chapter 6, verses 12, Paul doing the very same thing, quoting the, the ideas of the people and then responding with his own commentary and his own application in verse 12 of chapter 6. All things are lawful for me. This was the statement of the people. Paul adds his commentary, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, the people's commentary, but I will not be mastered by anything. So my view is is that Paul is literally addressing the desire of these people to abstain from sexual immorality or excuse me sexual intimacy because they are trying to counteract the issues of the culture because they have seen these issues blend into the church the Corinthians have dealt with literally sin existing in the church a sin that they did not deal with properly where a man was having intimacy and sexual relations with his mother-in-law. And so as many times throughout history, in dealing with things in the world, we sometimes swing the pendulum all the way to the other side. Well, if if, if we're going to uh, be so tempted by sexual sin, let's go to the completely other side and let's abstain from it completely, of all sexuality in marriage. That's why the Paul begins this statement. It is, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Obviously, the word touch here means not marriage, but sexual intimacy in the relationship of marriage. And therefore, the gift from God in marriage is the very gift that Paul will deal with in this, uh, this chapter, these first seven verses that intimacy in marriage is a gift from God. To abstain from it, to refrain from it as a way of life goes against what God has designed. Matter of fact, abstinence was an act of asceticism in the, old, in the, in the early church. If you're not familiar with asceticism, cultural asceticism was when religious uh, acts would be done in a way in which we sh- we were uh, a person was trying to master their body, control their impulses, and therefore they would self-deny to the extreme, trying to seek or gain a deeper spiritual connection with God. Now, we would say that in a way Jesus promotes some form of asceticism when he tells us to deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow him. So we want to encourage and promote self-denial of the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the pride of life. But ascetics took it to the next level. And I would argue this afternoon that abstinence in the relationship of a husband and a wife is an extreme ascetic position that does not honor the Lord. And I think that's Paul's position as well. Some ascetics would whip themselves when temptations arise in order to focus their mind on something other than that temptation or lust. Some other ascetics, uh, they isolated themselves in caves and away from society in order to avoid the lusts of the world. 
One particular woman in Paris in 1403 by the name of Agnes de Rochere. Once her father died, a wealthy uh, nobleman leaving her all the sole possessions of of his wealth, the rumor began to circulate immediately that she was going to be free and all these young gallant men were going to make their way to woo her into marriage in order to get her money. And so she determined to avoid such a thing, to avoid such a temptation, to uh, connect spiritually with, with the Lord. She became a recluse. She had in the church building in Paris then build a cell where they bricked her up completely in, inside the small quarter area only to leave a little hole exposed so she could hear the sound of the church and have communion and the, the basic necessities pushed through this hole. They would seal it completely shut with the greatest, strongest stone and mortar. And from the years of 18 years old to 98 years old, Agnes lived in complete isolation in order to avoid that lust and that difficulty. Now, as a father of teenage girls, this idea seems very appealing to me. It is an extreme act, though, to fight against sin. Out of fear for immorality... The Corinthian believers were touting such ascetic practices like abstinence, but the truth of the matter is, is that God calls us to holiness. He calls us to obedience. Asceticism doesn't allow us to show and demonstrate the faith that is needed, the faith that God has given us, the power of God within us to do what He's called us to do. So therefore... Paul will make the case that although he is celibate, although he has abstained from such sexual uh, practices, he will encourage and promote sexual intimacy in the marriage relationship. Look at verse 7. He says, Yet I wish that all men were even as I am myself. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. The word there literally, charisma, is a, it is a, is a God-given gift to us. One in one manner, which is the sexual intimacy enjoyed in marriage, and the other, the gift of singleness and celibacy, which we'll talk about next week. It's interesting because there's a debate as to if Paul was ever married in his own life, There's good reason to believe that he was because history tells us that Paul could not have been trained as a rabbi under the rabbi Gamaliel if he was not married because the Jewish people commanded that their men be married to promote God's good design of marriage. So we could make an informed assumption that Paul was married at one point in his life, but at the time of writing 1 Corinthians, he was not. And it's interesting that as a man who no longer lived in a married relationship, who claimed to have the gift of celibacy or singleness, 
still promotes God's good design for marriage and all that it entails. So today we're going to look at an important message for all of us in an overly sexualized culture. I remember as a young teenager in high school going to youth group activities and the, 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 the coined phrase, true love waits. If you're my age or older, you definitely remember that slogan. Looking back on that, I was an unbeliever, so the, the message never rang clear. But one of the things that stood out to me, even as I reflect back, is that the message for true love waits was always about don't do this, never wait and do that in God in a way to honor God. It was more of a negative, just don't do this because it's, it's not what God intended instead of celebrating the gift that God has given us and encouraging our children and encouraging our teenagers. It's worth the wait. It's worth the, the, the faithfulness and the obedience to fight against sin because when you get married in faithfulness with God or under the eyes of God with your spouse, you will experience and celebrate joy that you can't imagine. That magazines and movies and TV shows, they cannot clearly promote what you will enjoy that God has given you in the confines of marriage as you are intimate with your spouse. I don't think True Love Waits properly communicated that, but I digress. I was an unbeliever. So let's look at a few ideas today. Number one, marital intimacy is a necessary grace. Paul stating in verse 1, reflecting on their view, does acknowledge in verse 2, because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, each and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill the duty of his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over his own body, but the, the husband does, and likewise also the husband does, have author, does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now Paul is showing us that God has given the gift of intimacy and marriage for God's people to enjoy. And there's some practical guidelines that we need to understand as to why this is so necessary. It's not an option, folks. It's what God designed. And here's some reasons why it is necessary. Number one, it is necessary and needed for filling the earth with God's people. Paul doesn't mention this point here, but it's throughout the whole counsel of God that God's purpose and plan and good design for marriage was to populate the earth with people who honored Him. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Here in Genesis, we are seeing the very foundation of the way in which God designed 
human beings to flourish and grow on the earth and therefore fill the earth with His creation in a way that honors Him. As God appears and, 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 and regenerates and saves His people, they will procreate and they will generate disciples across the earth in their obedience to Him as they are fruitful and multiply. It's not just to fill the earth. It's to fill the earth with people who worship God, who make His name great, who proclaim His excellencies to those who are in darkness. And when you become one flesh with your spouse, leaving your father and mother, and be joining together as one flesh, that is not just financially, that is not just emotionally, that is not just in your household, it is actually intimately joining together with your wife. And as one can know and understand this concept of God's commands, it's easy to see how Satan and sin is trying to counteract the act of filling the earth full of God's glory. Think about it. The evil of child sacrifice, child neglect, child abandonment, abortion, all these things are schemes of Satan to counteract the process of little bitty children being born into the world, growing up to know God and love God and serve God as their parents have commanded. If Satan can destroy human life, and if he can destroy marriage, he thinks that he will succeed in reversing God's command to be fruitful and multiply. And so young people, singles... The culture wants you to ignore marriage and just cohabitate. It will tell you to forget these outdated, old-fashioned ways of your grandparents and instead just go live with someone of your own gender or of the opposite gender, however you prefer. They'll say, don't marry them. But yet they'll also say, yet marry them because it's your right to marry them, even if you're of the same sex. So that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Are they for marriage or against it? I can't understand. I guess it's just there for their marriage. But if you marry someone of the opposite sex, the culture wants you to seek uh, out the limit or seek to limit the amount of kids that you have. And instead, replacing that full house of laughter and joy and discipleship and honoring God, and replace that with a house full of garbage. Trinkets and gadgets that entertain you. Satan doesn't want you to procreate. Satan wants you to multiply things that are full of useless matter that have no eternal value or significance to his kingdom. For example, the sensation of the tiny houses. Not only is that an an enterprise of trying to save the planet from the carbon uh, imprint that you are having in your 2,000 square foot home with your gas-guzzling vehicles, but it's also a clear, distinct way of saying, you just live in a tiny house and you don't need all those children. Clearly, that's not the practice in my home. 
God wants you to have a host of children, adopt a host of children, love a host of children because it honors Him in such a way of bringing Him glory. Don't get caught up in your career and don't get caught up in all the things of the world that they have to offer you because it always is insignificant in eternal value. But raising children to love God and to carry on the torch of God's Word has eternal significance. So, marital intimacy is a needed grace because it fills the earth with God's people. Also, it is needed because it fulfills your desires and fulfills the desires of your spouse. God supernaturally places in His people a longing for their partner that is built upon His faithfulness. We don't want to just fulfill our sexual desire with the closest available person. We want to fulfill our sexual desire because God has placed that desire in us to be fulfilled by one person, your spouse, in the confines of marriage, in the covenant of marriage. That's why in Genesis chapter 22, the Lord fashioned into a woman the rib which He had taken from man. He brought her to man. The man said with like, uh, with all the ceremonial and wedding vow themes there, this is now bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam was full of joy. He wasn't annoyed by this woman. He was celebrating this woman. He had the very look on his face that all men have as their wife walks down the aisle. This this fear of celebratory horror and joy all in the same sense. Horror because he's like, what am I doing? I can't believe I'm standing here. I'm about to be married. How am I going to be a good husband? And yet complete celebration and joy because the woman that he loves, that God has ordained for him to be with, is walking down the aisle and they are going to become one flesh before witnesses in God. And that person is a suitable helper is a companion, is a counterpart to you as a spouse, meaning that you need that person in full companionship. A companionship that could not be fulfilled by the beasts of the earth that God created or by the landscape. Isn't it like the evil of this world to go want to marry a tree and hug a tree and find fulfillment in what they quote Mother Nature when truly it's the God-ordained marriage covenant that God has created to fulfill that need? You're not going to like this. Your pets don't fulfill that need, church. The world and the landscape around us does not fulfill that need. Your spouse fulfills that need. You enjoy and, 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 and find great intimacy with that spouse in such a way that you will worship and honor God in a greater way than if you abstained. So Solomon told his son, as a good father, in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15 to 19, drink water from your own cistern. Fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, son? Streams of water in the streets, in the gutters, 
He says, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. This is the proper true love waits message. Be overwhelmed with the opportunity that you have to love a woman, to find fulfillment in that woman both emotionally and sexually. That it's worth the wait because it is incomparable to any TV show or movie or magazine that tries to create some 2D image that cannot capture the beauty that you will experience in your marriage bed. Those actors don't love and care for each other. It's fake intimacy. They finish the scene, they go to their appropriate um, campers in the parking lot, and they have no connection to that person other than making money and being promiscuous in doing it. And what it does, it distorts our understanding and expectation of marriage. So that we do it for love instead of do it for God. Love's not wrong. But ultimate obedience to what God has commanded is the very thing in which we should seek out to do. To be faithful, to desire marriage, and to be intimate in that marriage relationship. Which is why he says in verse 2, Each man is to have his own wife, not his own husband. And each woman is to have her own husband, not her own wife. To have means to engage intimately in the relationship. Paul is not dealing with a gender issue here, although it's very applicable for us today. Each man is to have his own wife. That's the sanctity of marriage. That's the beauty of marriage. That's the right spouse order in marriage. One man and one woman coming together in the sanctity and beauty of marriage as God intended it. Not to fall into sexual immorality and adultery. And although that monogamy might seem old-fashioned, it's actually fashioned by God before old even existed. It's the plan of God before time. As Brother Terry talked about election, God's plan before the foundation of the world, His pure design, His perfect design. It needs no correction and no adaptation. To have your wife means a commitment to the fullest intimacy that you can experience. And so church, the person that God has ordained you to be with in your present or in your future is His good design. And it's for your greatest joy and fulfillment. And if you have not yet found them, wait patiently and pray for them. Seek out the characteristics and the qualities of who these people should be. God will not give you a name. His providence will give you a name. But He will give you the characteristics and the foundations of who He wants you to marry. And you filter that person 
And those people, as rigorously as you filtered anything else through God's Word, because it doesn't just affect you. It affects your children. It affects your your parents. It affects the culture. Don't give in to the cultural demands that you need to be married at this age or in this way. What does the Bible say? Isaac found Rebekah by the providence of God as he had directed their paths into one. Wait for God to lead you to the person that you will marry. Jacob and Rachel found themselves also by God's providence and Jacob was willing to wait 14 years to marry this woman. So marital intimacy is fulfilling your desires for your spouse to have your own wife, men, and women to have your own husband. Thirdly, marital intimacy is to fulfill the sanctity of marriage. Paul says again in verse 2, because of immoralities. Listen, God doesn't come up with bad ideas. Man corrupts God's good plan every time. Sin entered the world and corrupted the intimacy between a man and a woman. So that many ungodly aberrations have come forth in the world, including and not limited to things such as masturbation, adultery, incest, bestiality, child abuse, polygamy, and more. All of these are corruptions to what God intended and designed for men and women to be fulfilled and to have sanctity in the marriage covenant. So Paul warns the church that abstaining from sexual intercourse in marriage is actually not the holier course of action. It does not raise you to another spiritual plane or level in your relationship because of the reality of sexual temptation. Look at verse 4. He says, "...the wife does not have authority over her body." But the husband does. And likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body. The wife does. Stop depriving one another, he says, with full command. Except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He acknowledges... That intimacy is necessary in marriage because we are still weak. Our temptations to lust and to sin sexually are constantly bombarded in our face. It's no different in Corinth than it is in America. It's not a new thing. There are no new things. Satan will continually tempt us and therefore... To fulfill the sanctity and the purity of marriage, we must not abstain because of our lack of self-control. God desires, church, that with this authority over your spouse's body, that you do not manipulate that authority. This is not a demand and receive command from God. This is a mutual respect and honor for your spouse. Husbands, if you desire to demand 
sexual intimacy with your wife when she's not willing, then you have a spiritual problem on both sides. There may be a true spiritual issue that needs to be addressed. Therefore, your authority is based upon mutual agreement, mutuality. Otherwise, you fail to obey 1 Peter chapter 3, where husbands are called to live with their wives in an understanding way, as someone who is weaker since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Intimacy in marriage is actually an area where you serve one another, care for the interests of your spouse more than yourself. If you're engaging in such intimacy only to get it over with, let's get this done, then I would ask you, friend, to consider what has God designed for you. It's a time for both parties to exercise healthy, respectful commitment in the marriage bed. Doesn't mean that the spouse should demand anything from his wife or the wife from her husband, but instead to show honor to one another so that Satan may not tempt us to sin. Christian marriages have been polluted and destroyed because of this abstinence that's been practiced. Abstinence invites a failure to accomplish marital sanctity, invites dishonor on God's good creation. And so what Paul does in verse 6, 5 and 6, is he gives like an addendum. He calls it a concession, not a command. And in that addendum or that concession, he says that temporary abstinence for the sake of prayer or a fast even is acceptable in order that our minds might be refocused on a proper worship of Christ. But he's clearly acknowledging that this is not a command that the Lord has given and yet a principle that can be practiced in order to avoid the pitfall of sexual immorality. So as review, sexual intimacy or marital intimacy is a necessary gift and grace from God so that we might fill the earth with God's people, that we might fulfill the desires that God has given us for our spouse and them alone, And finally, to fulfill the sanctity of marriage from a holy God who desires all things in which He has created to be holy. And secondly, point number two, is that marital intimacy is an appointed grace. It's an appointed grace. Paul makes a very bold statement in verse 7. I've already read it. I'll read it again. Yet I wish that all men were even as I am myself. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. The one in this manner and the other in that are the two distinctive ideas in Paul's mind about those who God has gifted to be married... 
and therefore practice marital intimacy to the glory of God, and those, on the other hand, who have been gifted celibacy, who will live their days single without relationship and partnership in the bonds of marriage, acknowledging that singleness is not a mark upon a person for any sin, any disparity or dishonor of God. Instead, singleness and celibacy is actually an appointed gift from God. Now, we'll get more into this next week, but I want you to consider the ramifications of that idea in this culture. How do we view people that are single at a later age in life? I wonder what's wrong with them. I wonder what's happened to them. I would believe even and and go so far as to assume that people get married with the assumption, or excuse me, with the pressure of society and all those things I listed at the beginning of my sermon, and yet the whole time they've never yearned for a spouse of the opposite gender. They've never longed to be with someone in the, or the bond or the covenant of marriage. And yet for social pressure, they married and always felt out of place because they were gifted with singleness. So verse 7 is a transition verse to the next situation that Paul will deal with that we'll look at more with next week. Paul himself makes known his celibacy and is practicing that celibacy and abstinence as a gift from God. He's acknowledging it. He's accepting it. He's, being, he's even acknowledging the fact that it serves ministry well to not be married as he will show us later on in chapter 7. He sees the goodness of marriage. And yet he also, agreeing again back with the original statement that the Corinthians were making, sees how marriage and the the distraction it could be to gospel ministry, it oftentimes could be better to just stay single and serve the Lord fully until your last days. But yet he also acknowledges that some people are gifted with the desire for marriage, with the yearning for a spouse, and God so ordains and appoints that gift upon people, and therefore because he's appointed that, they should fulfill it for his glory. And we will look at his celibate life and the gift of singleness next week. But let me just encourage you to be reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. In the marriage relationship, live your marriage relationship to the glory of God. And so the question is, how can you glorify God in this way? couple of points for you. Number one, understand that it's God's good design and be committed to honor God with sexual intimacy in your relationship. It's the part of the life that He's given you and it's your spiritual act of worship. If He's given you the gift of singleness, do the same. It's His good design. Be committed to it and honor Him with it. Similarly, 
Be committed to work hard at it. For as you know, nothing in marriage is easy. You automatically see at the very beginning of, in Genesis chapter 3, when sin enters the world and corruption enters the world, you immediately have two conflicts. Conflict between God and man, and conflict between man and woman. Adam immediately begins to blame God. Eve begins to blame her husband. That's the first marital disagreement that we have in the Bible. Because marriage is hard, it's not easy. These things take effort and energies and strategies. And barring medical conditions in our bodies, we should strive hard and strategically to honor the Lord with His Word as He has designed marriage to be. Now I know some of you might be saying in your mind, Nathan, you don't understand. Well, I don't understand your body. I don't understand your desire. But I understand that if it's your weakness, God is your strength. If He created it to be, He will enable you and command you, or He will enable you and equip you to do it. Trust Him. And if you've not lived in such a way in this area of your marriage, if you have abstained when you shouldn't abstain, if you have withdrawn for manipulation, if you have withdrawn for the sake of of a power struggle or because of, of irreconcilable differences, repent. Seek the change in your relationship by faith and trust in His power. And finally, my last word of exhortation to you, which will probably shock you, is find accountability in the church. That's probably the most uncomfortable thing you might hear me say, but I mean it. You don't have to be descriptive with your brothers and sisters in Christ, but if God has so called us to these things in our lives, and He has knitted us together as the church, we're not called to live these struggles alone. First, come with your your spouse and agree with your wife that accountability is needed between one another, but also with brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Have some guidelines set. But we must keep each other accountable. We must bear each other's burdens. I know of a couple today that have been so trapped in a world, in a relationship and marriage that lacked intimacy And they were too afraid to tell anybody in the church about it. And you know what happened? It persisted. And it continued. And it divided a healthy marriage at one point. We as God's people look to the Lord as our strength. And we look to one another to bear the burdens in our marriages. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this gift. Father, the beauty of marriage, the relationship that we have with our spouses, the joy and the celebration that we can enjoy as God's people. And Lord, I 